Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. Wednesday morning. I'm flying right now, so I thought I'd do the show from the airplane. Yep. Because I'm like that. Actually, that's a lie. This is recorded. Yeah. Last Friday. Well, this is recorded last Sunday. What you're going to hear is recorded last Friday. So, um, in the course of doing this program, I got a chance to meet Mark Marletto. And he came on with the Mensa Brothers last week uh, to talk about some stuff. So, uh, Mike's been listening to his show since it started. And he sent me a very snotty email a while ago about, I don't know, snotty is the right word, but that's the way I'll characterize it. Um, because it is my show. And uh, and I could do things like that. So anyway, Mike, um, he this, he kind of takes me to task for um, for repeating something that has been said about the Battle of Gettysburg for a long time, and um, I have to tell you that. You know, so I took that criticism to heart, and I thought, "Well, is he right?" And his criticism was essentially, "You're repeating, you know, something that that's not based in fact." Now, the truth is, and you'll hear us talk about it when you look at sources for Civil War um, opinion and data and things like that. You know. Um, both sides write about the Civil War extensively after the war. And they write in English. So that stuff is uh, that stuff is available to everybody. And so you read it. And, um, you know, and Gettysburg probably sucked the most air out of the, uh, out of 
the post-Civil War discussion. And, um, and so one of the things you hear in, in that discussion is that, you know, the whole discussion of Pickett's Charge, right? So Pickett's Charge. Um, what you hear is that it would have, it would have succeeded that day, that third day at Gettysburg, if the artillery, if the Confederate artillery had um, just done its job. And so, and that's, that's what I've heard. That's what I've read. And that's what I've regurgitated. So, uh, Marletto takes me, Marletto takes, he takes me to task. Why are you repeating that? Um, and I say, I don't, cause it's true. I mean, when you read at accounts of the bombardment, you know, it was marginally effective with many of the rounds landing right behind cemetery Ridge and not doing what Lee wanted it to do. And so then he gets into me. He goes, well, um, look, I think there's deeper explanation there. And someday if you'd like to, um, you know, I'd be happy to come on and, you know, unscrew you. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, let's do it sometime. So that's what you're going to hear today. What you're going to hear today is a deep dive on artillery in the Civil War and a Civil War discussion, period. So, um, yeah, if you're not into history and if you're not into Civil War history and you don't like to hear any discussion of, uh, art- uh, of artillery, then you need, to, you need to change the station right now. But if you are kind of a historical dork and you want to hear a smart guy talk about artillery uh, and the way it was used in the Civil War, then you're in the right place. Yeah. So... Okay, with that said, don't touch that dial. Uh, Mike Marletto, uh, retired colonel, you know, he'll, we'll talk about his career here in a, a couple of minutes. But, uh, yeah, sit back if you're, it's about, you know, it's about 90 minutes of, of an artillery discussion. Things like organization, how the cannons function, how the batteries were organized, how the logistics were organized, how they spotted Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So if you're looking to get smart about Civil War artillery, you're in the right place. And without further ado, on this Wednesday, Mike Marletto. Hi, this is Mike McNamara, and you're listening to All Marine Radio on your home for it, the one and only All Warrior Radio Network. When you hear that music, you know something big is going to happen on the program. And so we're... 
You're not supposed to hear that, okay? That's Jose Feliciano singing Feliz Navidad, so that's for another time. But anyway, um, we're doing big shit today. And joining me from Down, un- down Under is uh, Mike Marletto, um, artilleryman by trade, and uh, retired colonel in the United States Marine Corps. And so Mike has been educating me about the, uh, the subtleties of artillery at the Battle of Gettysburg. So we're going to talk about this. So um, let's talk about you and cannoneers, cannoning, and the Civil War, Mike. Uh, first of all, thanks for doing this. I love talking about this kind of stuff. Um, how, how do you get um, – are you a history guy? How do you uh, – I mean, uh, the, enough time I'm, I'm sure spent in northern Virginia and uh, the D.C. area. Um, how do you get interested in, in Civil War artillery? Well, Mac, uh, let me let me say I should have started by demanding my own walk-on music. And, uh, <laughs> you should. I, I would have said we should have played Barry Maguire's Eve of Destruction <laughs> because that's uh, that's where the uh, probably the Confederate artillery and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia sat on the uh, morning of July third, and we'll talk about that. But to answer your question. Uh, I don't claim to that I'm a big Civil War uh, aficionado or guy, uh, but I got tired of hearing the the claims that Pickett's charge would have succeeded if the Confederate artillery only did its job, and it would have you know the Pickett's charge would have ended in uh, glory if the artillery only did its job and the whole war would have been different. And that the primary argument you hear from a lot of people, uh, and I hear it, heard it through, through multiple, I hear it through multiple sources, and you see it a lot of times in uh, multiple books, is that the infantry attack failed because the Confederates' mass bombardment that preceded it was poorly executed. So I kept hearing that, and I've I decided. Said, I've, said, I've said that. I know you've said it multiple times. Yeah, so, I believe, and I believe that. All right. Well, we'll talk about that. All right. So if uh, your shit better not be weak, okay? Because if it is, we're going to have we're going to have a problem here. You know. So the question is, hey, is that true or false? Partially true, partially false, or so? Let me ask you this: How did you? So did you just get sensitized to this because of you know what you just said is like dramatic failure of artillerymen in a battle? Did that? Did you just take umbrage with that? That. It's got to be the grunt's fault. It can't be the arty guy's fault. Well, I didn't know. But, you know, so I decided to investigate it uh, because, you know, my knowledge of Gettysburg was probably similar to a lot of people. You know, I'd seen the Ken Burns um, show. Uh, I'd, I'd heard some things. I'd been to Gettysburg. I read, you know, the Killer Angels. And uh, so certainly that portrays a, a, a view of the, the battle. Right. So I just, you know, decided, well, I want to get smart on this and find out, you know, hey, is that true? You know, maybe it is. Uh, but if it is, why did that, uh, why did that happen? So, so you want to, so can we talk about um, artillery um, uh, as it comes to Gettysburg and, 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 you know, look at each side before we talk about the battle itself. Can you, you want to give Absolutely. us a little? Absolutely. So what, I, what, here's what I propose that we do Mac, right. is that, you know, I'll give you a brief overview of uh, civil war artillery. Okay. 
um, you know, won't get into a lot of details, but just, you know, so people understand that Civil War artillery was a lot different than what we think of in modern artillery. It was a direct fire weapon, didn't have the long range uh, indirect fire capabilities that we've got today. And then we'll take a look at how the artillery was organized in both on the Confederate side and the Union side and the impacts that that had on the battle, because I think they were vastly organized, vastly different. Yes, exactly. And I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the failures on the Confederate side were due to their artillery organization and a lot of the success that really doesn't get told a lot of times uh, of the contributions that the Union artillery made were due to the organization that uh, they had. So we'll take a look at those, the organizations and how they were put together. And then uh, propose that, hey, we'll analyze the effort by examining uh, it in terms of the, you know, today's targeting methodology that we uh, use that will look at decide, detect, deliver, and assess. And so we'll take a look at what decisions were made, how they, you know, had to acquire targets and the necessary targets to achieve uh, what the purpose that was set forth. We'll talk about the delivery, and this is one place where the Confederates' uh, artillery gets a lot of uh, criticism. And then we'll talk about how the assessment of the effects of the bombardment uh, were done. Um, And that led, of course, to launching the attack. And so I think after that, we can draw some conclusions based on that analysis and discussion so and and the one thing the one thing that 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 i that i'm anxious to to do this is these are not novice artillerymen as they go to gettysburg these are seasoned combat tested multiple major engagements artillerymen uh on on both sides i mean they've been these guys been at it for uh two years and a lot of these guys have been involved in a lot of those fights a lot of the guys who were figureheads at the start are now gone and having risen through the ranks through merit are more capable guys. Not everybody, but but it's two years into the war and and you're seeing guys, you know, that have risen, uh, you know, through merit. So so these guys are at Gettysburg when you allege a mistake. I mean, these guys are experienced guys, and so that's what I find very interesting in looking at the decision making and how this thing happened. Like, okay, so the most experienced, some of the most experienced, experienced artillerymen on the planet are there that day, right? In 1863, well, you were you're you're not going to find a whole lot more experienced guys than the guys in the United States who've been fighting their ass off for the last couple of years, and then so you're alleging some kind of you know gross error. In, in their performance, and I always find that kind of stuff very interesting to look at. Well, I think what's interesting, though, is you've also got to understand the context of that experience that they had developed, in particular with the uh, you know, Army of Northern Virginia artillery that, you know, most of the battlegrounds that they fought on in uh, Northern Virginia tended to be wooded in kind of what we would call more closed terrain. So when you get to Gettysburg and you get to day three of Pickett's Charge and you've got a large open area that uh, they're dealing with, that's going to have an effect on their both their planning and performance. And we'll talk about that uh, because it's, although they've got a lot of experience, they don't have a lot of experience doing what Robert E. Lee is going to task him to do. And I think that's part of the reason that they uh, have some uh, issues. So we'll talk about that. Got it. All right. 
So where are we so going to where are we going to start? So let's start. We'll talk a little bit about you know Civil War artillery. I mean, the first thing that people have to understand is that you know Civil War artillery was a direct fire weapon, probably much more analogous to you know our heavy weapons today than you know what you would think of of, of today's artillery. It's primarily an anti-personnel weapon. And it's also best used in the defense because artillery pieces, in if you put them in the offense, because they're a direct fire weapon, they've got to get on open terrain that's going to allow them to have visual line of sight to the target. So you've got two basic types of artillery that we're uh, dealing with on both sides. Uh, they're all muzzle loaders, except the you know, Confederates do have uh, two Whitworths, which were breech loaders, but they really play no part in Pickett's Charge. So you've got your smooth bores, which are essentially a big shotgun with the 12-pound Napoleon being the most prevalent. And your smooth bar, uh, bore artillery is essentially better at your shorter ranges. Then you've got your rifled uh, artillery. You know, you, it adds spin, gives you a stabilized round. You've got your three-inch ordnance rifles, which were most prevalent, and you've got the ten-pound parrots. Uh, can you can you explain something to me? I'm enjoying yep. I'm enjoying this already. Can you explain fusing and and I'm gonna get I'm gonna get to the fusing because that's yeah. critical. So yes, yeah. Hold on just a second. Okay. So uh, you know your so essentially your rifled artillery is better for long-range targets. Uh, we'll talk about uh, when we talk about ammunition, why that's uh, the case. Uh, aiming, you know, they're aiming with iron sights. They see your elevation is set by, uh, you know, basically the up and down is set by a hand screw underneath the uh, tube. But your left and right uh, aim, there's no traversing mechanism. So essentially, you got to move the trail or probably got to kick the trail to make, you know, micro adjustments for uh, aiming. Explain, explain, kick the trail to, to, what does that mean to people? Okay, so you've got a single trail that uh, comes off your carriage. There's some hand. Uh, okay, hold on. So even explain that. So, and, and we'll put it, I'll put a diagram up, right? Uh, okay. And, uh, of what a, a trail is. But, uh, but so there's the wheels, there's the gun, the gun sits in a, a wooden thing. What's that called? That's called the carriage. That's the carriage. So, so the the wooden thing the gun sits in, and then there's uh, that wooden piece that would attach to a wagon, right? Is that all part of the trail? That's the trail, and essentially okay. you can think of it as kind of a reverse tripod. Okay. So you know right. that would be the uh, back end of the tripod. So your points of contact on the ground are your two wheels, and then your trail. Okay, got it. Um, so, so when you're talking about traver- you know, you're talking about, you know, windage, lateral windage. You're talking about physically moving the trail, kicking it to make minor adjustments, and then picking it up and moving it. Right, and, making and, large adjustments by picking it up. There's some uh, hand uh, holds on it that you can pick up and move to make gross adjustments, uh, but minor adjustments would have to be made by. And so, you know, Mike is so, basically giving it a kick. So when. Guys like me are, are, are moving it, right? And is there a gunner that's looking down the site saying, little, 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 stop, drop it, right? Is that, are they yes. doing that? And then yes. is that thing staked down or does it roll? 
when it fires, it, your uh, it's your propellant is black powder. You've got typically about a pound of black powder propellant for your rifled artillery and two pounds of black powder for your smooth bores. So when those things fire, you're going to get about six to 12 feet of recoil. So when you see these reenactors, uh, you know, firing and you see all the smoke that, uh, you know, comes out, what you don't see is the recoil and that those guns, you know, jumping back and then having to be rolled back into position. And so essentially you've got to reacquire the target every time you fire. Uh, so uh, you don't have the things that we think of in modern artillery with hydronomatic uh, recoil, um, smokeless powder uh, that allow us to uh, achieve the high rates of fire and the indirect inac- fires and accuracy that we get in the late 19th and early t- uh, 20th century. Now, when also when this thing, when it fires, the trail, unlike modern artillery, the trail is not part of the recoil system. It simply jumps back, uh, you know, and basically till gravity, you know, stops stops it. As it fires and you repeatedly fire, that trail as it's recoiling back is going to dig a, a groove in the ground, which of course is then going to raise the tube, the elevation of the tube. So you've got to continually adjust that uh, elevation uh, mechanism in order to compensate for that um, change in the elevation of the uh, gun tube. But the bottom line being, so, you're, okay, Mike. So let me. So what? How do you set the elevation on this on, on this artillery piece? There's a screw mechanism under the back on the back end of the tube that the tube rests on, and you screw screw that mechanism, which raises and lowers the elevation of the tube. Got it. Now, how do I know where do they get the gun data from? Okay, we're going to talk about that. <laughs> we'll talk about <laughs> the quick Sorry. answer to it. The, the quick answer for you right now is that you've got to estimate the range to the target. Okay. And then on the inside of the ammo chests, as they open them up, there's what we would call a table of fire right. that tells you for a given uh, range, this is the elevation you set on the gun in order to achieve that range. And it also gives you the fuse setting uh, that you need to apply to your bursting type fuses uh, to achieve the effects at that that range. So that's all in the uh, basically pasted on the inside of your ammo, uh, you know, in your limber. So okay, hold on, t- hold on again. Limber is artillery talk. Okay. What, what is all right. what is limber? Each each battery, each gun has a limber, that's the, if you will, the two, um, two-wheeled two carriage that the horses are hooked up to. So you've got the gun is hooked to the limber. You've got some guys ride on the limber. Uh, and you've got six horses that are pulling the limber. Now for the each section, so the, not the, only... The, head, and so they pull the limber and the gun. Yes. Right, and the limber is like a what a big wooden box. It has it's a big in. wooden box. It contains and they've got ammunition inside it, right. and also 
they've got other, you know, the tools, other artillery tools. Now, you've also got a second limber for each um, gun section that pulls a caisson. And the caisson you can think of is kind of like the uh, ammo truck for the uh, um, gun. So it's full. That's where most of your ammo is carried in, you know, the caisson. So thinking. In, so that wooden so box you, on the on the on the on the limber would be my ready ammunition that I'm going to shoot right now, and then I'm going to resupply that box, or I'm somehow when I after I shoot that, then we're going to tap the ammunition that's on the caisson. Right. You've well, you've got all of that available, but essentially, yes, you've all got. When you pull into position, you've got your limber and your caisson are in position. Now, what's interesting is when you look at the number of, you start counting the number of horses uh, in a Union battery, you know, you've got about 100 horses in the battery because you've got 12 horses just for each gun with six for pulling the limber for the, the gun, six pulling the caisson. And then you've got a battery wagon. That's basically your supply truck. Uh, got things like a forge that, uh, so if you have to, uh, you know, uh, make repairs to the wheels, you've got all the things that you need to, if you've got to uh, make uh, repairs to the harnesses. So when you count it up, each battery's got close to 100 horses. Wow. So, I mean, that's a pretty pretty big footprint, a physical footprint. And a battery, and, and, a, and a battery has a, a battlefield. A battery has a forge? Yes. Wow. Each battery so has a forge. Wow, that's amazing. Right, right. right. So they're pretty, they've got a lot of capabilities. Um, so you've got four types of projectiles, uh, and this is for both rifled and for uh, your smoothbore artillery. First of all, you've got shot. That's just basically a solid iron ball, uh, anti-personnel, anti-material. Now, what I found interesting is that the Union at Gettysburg had no rifled shot. They had solid shot only for their smooth bores. And for their rifle cannons, they did not stock or in their uh, ammunition any rifle shot. But they could make up for that by essentially firing what they called rotten shot, where they could fire their explosive shells without a um, time fuse on it and get the same effect as you got from a solid shot. But what that did for the Union is it simplified their logistics because they didn't have to carry that type of munition for their rifled artillery. So you got these large, you know, you got a ball. Think of it in terms of the size of a shot put that, you know, that thing when it mows, hits a, a um, infantry formation. And you, as you know, they're fairly densely packed in the Civil War. You know, that thing's tearing off limbs, legs. Uh, and, you know, torsos basically ripping people apart and it doesn't stop when it hits one person. If you're firing from the enfilade, you know, you can bowl down, you know, half a dozen to a dozen guys with one solid shot. Next, you've got shell, which is a hollow exploding projectile. It's filled with black powder. It explodes typically into about six or seven large fragments. And this is where you, you want to talk about the fusing. You get in, start to get into your time fusing. Essentially, you've got two types. You've got a wooden plug fuse, 
which has a piece of paper in it. It's cut to a, uh, it's got graduated uh, times that you can cut onto it to cut to the desired time. It's screwed or the wooden ones are pounded into the uh, projectile. And then when it's, when the cannon fires, the ignition of the propellant, the black powder in the cannon, it ignites that fuse and starts that fuse burning. Now, in uh, your smooth bores, you've got what they call windage or play, if you will, between, you know, the size of the cannon and the, uh, I should say, the bore of the cannon and the size of the shot that allows that propellant to go around the uh, projectile and ignite that fuse. On your rifled artillery, you've got cut into your shells or your exploding uh, shells. You've got what's called a flame groove that allows that propellant to travel uh, through around the, you know, the rifling in that uh, projectile and get to the uh, fuse that's at the uh, front of the projectile. Ingenious. Also, ingenious, isn't it? Yeah. And you've also no, got what's called a Borman fuse, which is a little more sophisticated it's got it's a round fuse and it's got times set around it. And then you've got a special tool that you use basically to poke into that Borman fuse to uh, set the fuse to the time that uh, you want it to uh, uh, go off. So your exploding shell is essentially really good as an anti-personnel um, projectile. Next, you've got your case. Case is an exploding projectile that's uh, loaded with uh, iron balls. And so, again, that's fired with a time fuse, and that thing explodes. It's got uh, um, iron balls in it that, you know, are great as an anti-personnel weapon. Think of it as kind of an early submunition type, uh, you know, round. And then you've got your canister. This is your big killer in a close range. Canisters is a tin can that's filled with shot. When it fires, that tin can peels away, essentially creating a big shotgun effect. Now, your smooth bores are effective out to about 400 meters with canister, where your rifled artillery is only effective out to about 200 meters. So if in the defense, your smooth bores have about twice as much killing power as your uh, rifled artillery, not only because of the range, but also because when it throws out that, uh, when that canister pattern goes out, it spreads in a larger, larger area. Now, at, when you get into real close ranges, you can also do what they call double canister, oh. where you put in two canister rounds into the, uh, you know, uh, your smoothbore cannons, and you can fire, you know, double the amount of uh, projectiles that, uh, you know, close range. In some cases, there's some cases where you even had units using triple canister. And when you ran out of uh, canister, you could do the field expedient, throw in rocks, bayonets, anything that uh, was available in order to, uh, you know, engage uh, infantry at short, short range. And so at that point, those cannons become machine guns. With that, well, yeah, essentially they're giant shotguns. Right. They don't have the, they don't have the uh, rate of fire as a machine gun, but they uh, have a, quite a bit of killing power, and 
it's uh, you know pretty dead deadly stuff. And that and that stuff is used in close quarters. Used it uh, like I say for smoothbore. It's used at 400 meters or less, rifled 200 meters or less. Got it. So essentially, as these guys crossed the uh, Emmitsburg Road, you know they were starting to be engaged by, you know, canister. Got it. Got it. All right. So um, so that's artillery in general. And uh, if you look at the post, uh, you'll see uh, you'll see the uh, what Civil War uh, era artillery uh, batteries look like the way they're configured. So the things Mike's talked about, uh, the cannon with the trail, you'll see the um, you'll see the caisson, and uh, and so you'll see those images. And uh, and so let's talk about uh, what's next. Uh, how each side. I want to talk about artillery, the organization. Yeah. So the Confederates brought about approximately, you know, and everything we see, and you know, anytime we talk numbers, you know, it's all subject to what source you use. So I'm going to talk in approximation because, uh, sure. again, you know, one historian will tell you they had this many cannons, another will say, well, they had this many. Also, we well, really one of the great is, writers on the Confederate side, though, was Porter Alexander, right? Yes, one of the great writers and propagandists is Porter <laughs> Alexander. Well, he was an artilleryman. I mean, come on, did he you, was. Did you expect he him was. to tell the truth? <laughs> well, he's got to he's got to cover his ass a little exactly. bit, but, right? Uh, so, Churchill's so great line, right? I know history is <laughs> going to be be kind to me because I will write right. it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So the Confederates had approximately 270 guns on the field, and they were, you know, basic breakdown about 50% smoothbore and 50% rifled. Confederate batteries had four guns per battery, and about two-thirds of their batteries had mixed guns, where they had smoothbores and rifled artillery in the same battery. Two so th- you might have— Two-thirds. Right. So you had— uh, now, you know, now, now Mike, Mike, let me ask you: Why is that? Why would they? Why would they spread load um, guns like that as opposed to to, to say, "Look, we're, you're either going to be smoothbore or rifled, and we'll you know we'll we'll, we'll move batteries." Why, why do you think they you know they mix okay, guns, well, guns like that? It, the advantage was it gave you a, a mix. It gave you long range capability with your rifled artillery, and it gave you your short range capability with uh, your smoothbore all in one unit. Got it. Uh, now, interestingly enough, after Gettysburg, Porter Alexander is going to push and the Confederates are going to push to go to single um, weapon system uh, batteries like, as we'll talk about, the Union had. You know, the big disadvantage you've got, though, is you've created a logistics nightmare for yourself because every battery requires two different types of ammunition, smoothbore ammunition and uh, rifled ammunition. And in some cases, it's even further complicated because they might have a mix of, you know, weapon systems. So they might have in their rifled artillery, they may have a three-inch ordnance rifle or they and a 10-pound parrot. Uh, so you've got two different types of ammunition required for those that rifled artillery. And one thing I got to point out is about 40% of the Confederate artillery was captured Union artillery. 
So they've got, you know, a, a mix and their, you know, their industrial base is not as uh, well developed as the uh, federal side. So and the place that probably that you probably see that manifest itself the most is in artillery. Right, right. And so you've got then you've got four batteries per battalion. So essentially on paper, you've got 16 guns per battalion. Each division in the uh, Confederate uh, Army of Northern Virginia had an assigned artillery battalion to the division. So 16 guns to support the division. They, they also had... So hold on. Six, so each division has a battery, has a battalion? Has a battalion. Got it. Now, they've also got an artillery reserve of approximately 101 uh, tubes or cannons, and they're organized into six battalions. But this artillery reserve is then assigned to each corps. Each corps gets two reserve battalions assigned to it. So essentially what you've got is you've got a very decentralized organization. It's responsive to the local commanders, but it limits and really prevents Robert E. Lee from wading the battlefield with uh, artillery. And he has no immediately uh, available artillery that he can influence the action with because he's pushed it all down to the uh, to the cores to the core and the division. Got it. So essentially, what you've got is you've got what we would look at today as a Soviet uh, type organization, where you've got command relationships established and between the maneuver units and the artillery. And in this case, you've spread your artillery pretty much equally across your three cores. So that's going to be a challenge when, as we'll, we'll talk about, when you now try and coordinate the action of, across multiple cores and you try and concentrate the uh, artillery from multiple divisions and multiple cores uh, in a you know, single centralized effort. Oh, so let me ask you a question about, the, about, command, that, about that command and control. So... Uh, from from what you you've seen, Mike, as we develop, you know how we're going to support this thing. Do we have do we have a uh, core fire support meeting? Um, are 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 the cannoneers taking or orders from the division commanders uh, and not and not meeting together? Um, well, you've point? got you've got Porter Alexander, who interestingly enough is tasked by Longstreet with coordinating the efforts in the, you know, in Longstreet's Corps. But interestingly enough, Porter Alexander is a battalion uh, commander. He is not the uh, artillery commander for, hang on one second here. He's not the commander for... uh, Longstreet's Corps. Longstreet's Corps artillery uh, commander is uh, Wainwright, and he gets bypassed. And, you know, so you've got a subordinate battalion commander that probably because, you know, of his reputation is tasked with, uh, you know, putting this together. Now, to answer directly answer your question, no, this is part of the problem. 
there is no fire support coordination meeting. There's no centralized, uh, you know, planning effort. You've got uh, General uh, William Pendleton, who is the chief of artillery for Lee, but he's got no staff and he's got no command authority over any of the artillery. It's all been, uh, you know, assigned to subordinate, uh, you know, commanders. So they've really got no command and control mechanism in place to effectively put together this mass bombardment that they're going to execute on the 3rd of July. Got it. Now, on the other hand, the Union, uh, they bring uh, 370 guns to the field, uh, roughly 60% rifled and 40% smoothbore. They've got six guns per battery, and they've only got one battery on the entire battlefield that's got uh, mixed weapons, and it doesn't, you know, really play a part in the uh, on the July 3rd. Now, Union artillery was reorganized after Chancellorsville, and what they did is they took the their artillery reserve and they put it under the command of. General Henry Hunt, the chief of artillery. And what he's now got the ability to do is he, the, what you've got in the uh, Union artillery is you've got assigned to every corps is an artillery brigade. And although it's called a brigade, you can really think of it as a battalion because it's got assigned to each uh, uh, corps is a brigade of five batteries or 30 guns. And then you've got your artillery reserve of 108 guns organized into five brigades or battalions that are under the control of General Hunt. So what this allows the uh, Union to do is they can, allows them to weight the most vulnerable area. They can rapidly shift combat power with immediately available artillery for General Meade to uh, influence the action. And this is what happens on uh, July 3rd. And so from an Army perspective, it's more centralized, and it looks a lot more similar to how we organize artillery for uh, combat today. So what this organization does for the Union, it creates a flexible, resilient uh, artillery arm that can respond to the tactical situation as needed. And as I looked at this and started looking at, and we'll talk a little bit more about it in detail here. As I looked at this and I said, you know, as Lee was planning his, uh, you know, uh, bombardment and created expectations for uh, his artillery, if he was executing it against the Union artillery as it was organized similar to the um, uh, Confederate artillery, with a decentralized organization, he probably had a greater chance for success because once you, with a decentralized organization like the Confederates had, once you eliminate that core um, artillery brigade and once you eliminate any brigades that have uh, been pushed down, there's nothing left to respond to the, uh, on the battlefield. So I thought in, I, in, in terms of to be able to make an on-the-fly adjustment in exactly in, in, and we'll in, talk, during and, the battle, there, yes. you've got nothing. And we'll talk about that as we talk about how you know the bombardment uh, plays out and the response to that bombardment. So 
I think we got to start, though, by looking at the, you know, just briefly look at the overall concept of operations, because you can't look at artillery in isolation. Uh, you know, when you look at Marine Corps uh, planning uh, doctrine in MCDP-5, you know, it tells us that we've got a hierarchy that we follow where it flows from conceptual to the functional level and to the detailed level, and that our concepts drive functions and details in turn uh, influence uh, concepts kind of back, coming back up. Uh, so what's Lee's concept? You know, on the morning of uh, July 3rd, you've got Ewell's Corps has a toehold up on the, in the north on Culp's Hill. You've got Longstreet located uh, to the south. He's, you know, the previous day he's captured the Devil's Den. He's uh, captured, the, you know, the area of the wheat field. It captured the peach orchard. And so they're sitting, he's essentially sitting astride, you know, Emmitsburg uh, Road. So now Lee wants to, you know, essentially say, okay, how am I going to, you know, um, destroy the Union Army? Yeah, and the, what he, which he is the decisive he, engagement he was looking for when he went north. That's correct. So he's essentially looking at how do I get, you know, he recognizes that the key or decisive terrain is Cemetery Hill. But he also recognizes that, hey, they've got a pretty strong defensive position. So as they reconnoiter it, they say, ah, we think that they've got a weak point in the center of the line where the Emmitsburg Road, you know, passes uh, in front of the uh, Union position. And, you know, that's marked by, as we know, the cops of trees. So once again, there's lots of discussion on what was Lee's objective, but, you know, was it, you know, really Cemetery Hill uh, and, you know, but I think we can pretty, pretty well uh, agree that, you know, he's looking to basically indirectly approach Cemetery uh, Hill by attacking a weak point along Cemetery Ridge that he's hoping he can penetrate and then essentially roll up the uh, Union line and get his decisive, uh, you know, engagement. So I'm... Um, we in agreement with that, Mac? Or you yeah, want to no, add anything? I, yeah, no, I'd say that that's uh, when you look at his scheme and maneuver. Um, that's yeah. exact. That's exactly what he sees. He sees that, um, you know, that that kind of. Uh, if if you recall, if you look at the map that's here in the post, uh, you know, the the line looks like a fishhook. It starts at Culp's Hill. It, it wraps around Cemetery Hill. Then it runs down Cemetery Ridge, um, down towards uh, on the back side of the wheat field. Um, and the peach orchard, and then towards a uh, little round top. That's the that's the fish hook. And if you look at that, that on exposed on the forward slope were those Union lines of infantrymen, and that's a uh, you know that's my I, that's Lee's assessment from uh, the scheme and maneuver. He's gonna he's gonna he's gonna pile drive that thing. Yeah. No, I think it's important that we kind of take a look at. Uh... You know, again, so we're just not doing uh, history here is take a look at what is what does our doctrine today say about a penetration as a form of maneuver, because it's got some implications and on how you organize the force and how you execute the attack. So, you know, what our doctrine says is that a penetration is a form of offensive maneuver where an attacking force 
seeks to rupture the enemy's defense on a narrow front to disrupt the defensive system, which is exactly what we talked about. A penetration generally occurs in three stages, rupturing the position, widening the gap, seizing the objective. And a penetration is accomplished by concentrating overwhelming superior combat power on a narrow front and in depth. As the attacking force ruptures the enemy's defenses, units must be tasked to secure the shoulders of the breach, ultimately widening the gap for follow-on units. Rupturing the enemy position and widening the gap are not in themselves decisive. Follow-on forces must be close behind to secure and widen the shoulders of the gap and also to exploit the rupture. Now, this is where, um, as you start to look at how, you know, the maneuver units uh, get laid down and what transpires, um, you know, that concept as executed starts to me to look much more like a frontal attack than a penetration. But that's just my No, I, I, I don't think you're wrong. When, when you read by definition, what he's done, what he's doing is he's conducting a frontal attack on a relatively narrow front, right? But if you were going to say, would this by definition be a penetration, you would say what? No. By definition, no. Yeah, but within a frontal attack, we also say within a frontal attack, you can have penetrations, which is what he's trying to do. Right. And those principles that we talked about for a penetration still apply. So, you know, as we'll talk about at the end of the day, you know, they, they do get a rupture of the, you know, position, but they, you know, certainly fail to widen the gap and they certainly don't have the follow-on forces arriving that are going to exploit that. Point being... That's not an artillery failure. That's uh, Robert E. Lee's failure. Whoa, we haven't, even got, we haven't even got to the failure part, man. My point, Mac, is that, you know, uh, you've got to look at all the functions. You know, to, it's, a, it's reductive to say that, a reductive to say, well, I'm going to only look at the failure of the artillery. Because like most complex events, it's not, it's very difficult to say, well, if this one single thing worked, everything would have, uh, you know, been been, uh, been all peachy. Because I think, you know, as you're going to, as you well know, as you start to go on the attack, there are problems with timing and the commitment of units. Uh, You know, uh, the uh, southern part of the attack gets kind of committed piecemeal after you know, pick it by simultaneously. And oh, by the way, at about 0400 on the morning of the 3rd, you know, the federal, uh, you know, the Union forces seize the initiative and launch a counterattack on uh, Culp's Hill to drive Ewell's forces uh, out of that toehold off the, uh, at the base of Culp's Hill. So the simultaneous attack that was planned on Culp's Hill as a supporting attack in con- conjunction with Longstreet's attack, that thing's blown out of the water uh, early in the morning, and that fighting, uh, you know, essentially Ewell spent by the time that Longstreet kicks off the attack. 
So again, okay. the concept of a you know closely coordinated supporting attack that's going to fix Union forces uh, is you know basically out the window because the uh, Union uh, seizes the initiative and, for lack of a better word, launches a spoiling attack at zero four. All right. So we've already got to your conclusion. Are we done yet? We haven't even talked about the artillery screwing up yet. No, we haven't got. We haven't talked to the artillery, but now we're going to. All right. All right. So let's take. A so look so we we know that that or at least in 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 your critical analysis, the scheme of maneuver, if if he's looking to conduct a penetration, that is not what what he has arrayed here relative to his units, um, and so. And then the other, the other, the other point being that you know the historical fact is that um, there was uh, spoiling attacks, um, and this thing, which which plagues the Army of Northern Virginia the entire um, fight at Gettysburg, the inability to coordinate their actions, right? Right. Exactly. Um, no, if- allows the Union with internal line of communications to do some things and be responsive during the battle. And, and what's really, I think, from a decision-making standpoint, what's very interesting uh, at Gettysburg is um, they have studs now all over the place. You know, with sickles aside, they have guys like Buford, Reynolds, Hancock, you know, um, Strong Vincent on Little Round Top. I mean, they, they have these guys that are now experienced, hardened, good commanders on uh, that every time there's a big decision that has to be made, again, with the exception of Sickles, union union leaders step up and they hit it right on the screws. And I, I and I think that it's it's a very interesting when you go there and you look at decisions that get made there. I mean, to me, it's it's one of the most interesting parts of the battle, and that is the the leaders on the union side that that I mean are are starting with Buford and Reynolds are outstanding. Well, Mac and I got to put in another pitch for the artillery because what? Uh, who's at the uh, center of this attack on the uh, defense on the Union side? You got Gibbon and Webb. You know, Gibbon is a division commander, and Webb is one of his subordinate brigade commanders, both former artillerymen. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting to note that the federal artillery uh, basically they passed a legislation that said you could not be. Uh, promoted a field grade rank in the uh, artillery, so a lot of uh, promising guys said, "Hey, forget this. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, lab moving to where I can get, you know, promoted." Wow. So you've got a guy like Alonzo Cushing, you know, who's uh, a first lieutenant. He's been, you know, in Antietam. He's been fighting for two years. He's a first lieutenant. You've got got a guy you know, like Webb, who's who's lab moved, and now he's a brigadier. General, you know, commanding a you know brigade. So, well, and I'll tell you what, Alonzo Cushing, and I'll tell you the other name um, that goes back to day two in the wheat field is a guy named Freeman McGilvery. Yeah, um, and there's nobody essentially behind McGilvery and his battery, and they retire by prologue across the wheat field, which is what you shoot the cannon rolls and you drag it a little bit, you shoot it again. And and it rolls back, and then you shoot it again. I, that's my understanding of it. You might correct me, Mike. But, I mean, the performance of the Union artillery um, is every bit as good as the decision-makers that, that employed it uh, at Gettysburg. I mean, uh, 
again, when you when you go into the wheat field and you look where McGilvery's battery was on day two, and you see what the hell they did, and there's nobody behind them yet. Somebody no. gets there, but no, McGilvery, without them, it's unbelievable. McGilvery's going to play a huge role here too because he commands the southern sector of the artillery that's oh, going to, um, you know, take on the uh, Confederates. And uh, just an interesting sidelight. Uh, you talked about uh, Bigelow's uh, battery, you know, that retired by uh, Prolong. Bigelow's Bigelow, of course, is wounded. He's out of the fight. He's got two guns uh, left at, uh, under the command of uh, Lieutenant Milton. And I guess they must have decided, hey, we're going to, after that big fight on the second, we're going to put you in a quiet sector. <laughs> so so they Milton ends up, you know, in the second core area, just behind, you know, uh, just to the flank of Arnold's Rhode Island artillery and Cushing, who are going to be, you know, at the apex of the attack. So <laughs> no, no rest for the weary. No kidding. No kidding. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Lee essentially says, hey, I got two tasks for the artillery. You know, first thing is I'm going to drive the, you know, basically neutralize the Union artillery, drive them off the, with a massed uh, pre-assault bombardment in order to, you know, remove that uh, artillery and the combat power that it brings to the fence. And it's going to allow my infantry to maintain freedom of action. And, you know, I'm going to eliminate the biggest killer in the defense. So as we advance across this open terrain, if I take away that killing power from the artillery, you know, I when I get up, uh, get up close, I'm confident my boys are going to be able to, you know, carry the day. Now, the second task he gives to the artillery is he says, hey, after the bombardment, you're going to displace forward in order to protect, protect the flanks of the advancing infantry and provide additional support to the assault. Essentially, what he's saying is, hey, I want continuous suppressive fire. Uh, but that task is interesting because that's typically not something that, you know, Civil War artillery did. And it, well, let me, you know, let me ask you a question, Mike. If I can reach out and touch you across the Emmitsburg Pike, why do I need to displace forward? What, what do I get from there, from that? Well, you need to displace forward because you're a direct fire weapon. Uh-huh. And as you start advancing, Essentially, you can't provide overhead fire over your own, uh, you know, troops as they start popping up on the intervening terrain. Right, right, uh, right. You've got to displace either to the flanks or displace forward, and all that has to be, you know, that's a pretty detailed uh, evolution. All has to be coordinated and deconflicted, and quite frankly, that did not happen. And uh, so, so, you're asking, so let me ask you this: so. Um, as, as you look at the ski maneuver and you look at the broad offensive that essentially stretches from Little Round Top um, to, cult, to to Cemetery Hill, okay. Um, once once we begin to close, our artillery gets shut off. What what did what did they do? Would batteries the plan, the, the batteries plan on a plank? Artillery, yeah. The plan was the artillery was going to shut off your kick off the attack, and then you're going to, uh, uh, you know, displace forward to continue to uh, suppress. Got it. But we'll talk about how that, uh, you know, causes uh, problems. Uh, now, let's take a look, you know, and the part of the problem is as you started, if you start advancing your um, 
Confederate artillery and there's still Union artillery out there, uh, you're putting those guys in an exposed position because they've got to get up on commanding terrain where they've got visual line of sight to the targets and they're going to be exposed to any Union artillery that's, uh, you know, still still out there. So let's take a look across the field because here you've got Hunt. You know, one thing we talked about, the, the you know, the lack of, uh, you know, Lee does not get all of his commanders together the uh, night prior to the attack. So he doesn't develop a common understanding, uh, situational awareness and common expectations that you get had they all sat down and talked through, you know, the fight. So you've got Yule thinking the fight's kicking off at, at uh, you know, dawn. You've got Longstreet planning for a morning attack, but he doesn't even have his units in position at, at the time. So on the other side, you've got Meade has his council of war and basically says, hey, if they come, they're going to come in the middle. Henry Hunt gets out there and he puts together a, a defense where he's going to concentrate the fire of essentially three groups of artillery. On the south, he's got Freeman McGilvery uh, located uh, along, you know, basically his plum run line that from that had been established the day prior. It's now been reinforced and dug in during the night. So you've got McGilvery uh, with about 39 uh, tubes on the uh, southern part. You've got Hancock's 2nd Corps artillery uh, with Hazard leading it in the middle. And then your northern grouping is Osborne's 11th Corps artillery. So essentially you've got these three groups with interlocking uh, fields of fire that Pickett and uh, the Confederates are going to have to advance through. Now Hunt also recognizes that, hey, you know, long-range fire is very is tough to do. We're primarily an anti-personnel uh, weapon system. So he tells his, uh, you know, artillerymen that I don't want you to shooting a lot of counter-battery fire. When these guys open up, as he sees them forming in the morning, you know, there's no, no surprise. You see this, they see this large um, group of uh, Confederate artillery, a total of about 150 cannons lined up, essentially hub to hub across, you know, the field from them. Uh, he says, I don't want you guys shooting counter-battery fire. I want, you know, now you can shoot it if you've got, you know, a good target that you can fire at. But what I want you to do is I want you to save your long-range ammunition to concentrate on the infantry. So as soon as they step off, I want to be hitting these guys with long-range fires. And then when they get in close, again, we're going to have these interlocking close-range fires where we're going to be dumping a bunch of canister on them, uh, you know, to repel the attack. Now, Hunt, unlike you talked about coordination, Hunt rides up and down the line and talks to every one of his battery commanders and tells them, hey, this is my expectation and these are my orders. So, you know, the Union side has got, you know, a coordinated plan that they're going to execute. So those are the decisions that were made. Let's talk about now uh, detection because this is where we start to uh, see some uh, problems because now that you've told uh, people what they're going to, you know, uh, expected to do, you've got to acquire the targets to do that. So the first challenge you've got is that 
you've got to determine the appropriate range to the target in order to deliver accurate, uh, you know, uh, fire. Now, the union position, it's a linear and relatively shallow position. And so you've got a lot of challenges. Now, back in the 70s, the U.S. Army ran some tests on target location. And what they found is in, in unfamiliar terrain, an inexperienced observer could only locate targets to an accuracy of 400 meters. If you had an experience, yeah. If you had experience, and again, is this using naked eye, Mike, or, or how? Naked eye, yes. Well, in the case of the seventies, you also using binos with a reticle pattern. You've got an accurate topo map. You've got tools like observe fire fans. You've got compasses that you can use. So you've got all these things to assist you, and you know, still, they found you know four hundred meters for inexperienced. Well, you've said. Hey, these guys were experienced. Well, the Army found that an experienced uh, observer could locate targets to an accuracy of 200 meters. Now, the gold standard, even today, at uh, when we train observers at uh, Fort Sill, is if you locate a target uh, within 100 meters of your of the actual location, you get 100 percent. So, in the Civil War, you know they didn't have binos, they didn't have the topo maps. What they had to do was use um, visual aids and determine range by what they knew that those targets would look like at a particular range. So what they said, what their doctrine said that is, and their manual said is that on a clear day with ordinary sight from 190 to 200 yards, every part of a man's body can be seen. And you know, from 400 to 480 yards, the face can no longer be distinguished, but the head, arms, and movements, as well as uniforms and muskets can. At 600 yards, the head and upper body and lower parts of the body can be made out. Of, and the, uh, But when you get to 750 yards to 800 yards, the body's in an elongated form. When you get out to 1,100 to 1,200 yards, the files can scarcely be distinguished. The troops appear like solid masses, and you can still pick up movement. So here's the problem. What's the distance we're talking about that the Confederates are trying to acquire targets? To show the confusion, uh, some guys did a study, and they went back to the primary sources and said, what did all these guys think the distances were that they were uh, going to be you know, fighting over and advancing over. And those distances ranged from 400 to 2,000 yards. Now, pretty much the general, generally agreed upon distance that uh, the you know, most folks covered was about 1,300 yards. So you can see that, hey, if you've got targets out there at a range of you know, over 1,000 meters, and you're trying to locate them accurately with a naked eye so you can get the proper elevation on the target and you can also set the proper fuse setting for your explosive uh, burst, you've got a big, big challenge out there. And so this target location uh, challenge, I think, is one of the reasons that starts the you know, cascade of problems for the Confederate uh, artillery. Because when you look at the firing tables and you start looking at the fuse settings, a difference in a quarter 
of a second in a fuse setting, which was based on your estimated distance to the target, right. is going to make you miss that target by over 100, 100 uh, yards or 100 meters. So, Mike, whether it's an, a, a, a bad estimate relative to range, and so you're, if it's a fused round, it doesn't function. It's essentially solid shot. Or your or it, it or, functions it functions late or early right if you don't have a right. you know uh, a correct you know uh, estimate now you know the Confederates also had a another challenge in that they were using fuses that had, that after Chancellorsville uh, were being produced by in uh, Selma Alabama and also in Charleston South Carolina. And interestingly enough, what they found is those fuses uh, burned about a second different from what they were supposed to burn. Wow. So, you know. So, so, so in so terms what, of what time of flight, they, in terms of time of flight, how much, how much distance does a second give you? In time of flight, uh, one second for a 12-pound a gun would give you a difference of about 300 meters. So you've got a challenge here. So, you know, what what could they have done, you know, and what would you do if you don't have an accurate target location? Before you fire for effect, before you launch this uh, big bombardment, uh, perhaps you could have fired, done some adjustments and adjusted some, uh, you know, one or two cannons onto, you know, the target to give you the range and the proper you know, timing. Gun data. Um, but that didn't happen. Mac, there's probably been more uh, written about the Battle of Gettysburg than uh, any battle in uh, U.S. history. And, you know, fortunately, there's lots of guys out there who get, get down in the weeds. And there's a couple of folks that went out and did a micro-terrain study and looked at all the sight lines uh, between Seminary Ridge and Cemetery Ridge. And they came up with something interesting. Lee and Longstreet basically rode along the ridge as they were planning, you know, the fight and the bombardment. And as they looked across, these folks have found that if you do look at the micro terrain and the visual uh, sidelines, that there's a good probability that they could not see McGilvery's brigade of 39 guns that was digged, basically dug in on the uh, southern portion of the, you know, the battle line. Uh, so you've got a large Union artillery organization formation that's not even going to be planned to be touched by the bombardment. And now, so, what they did so see, they're, they're just north of Little Round Top. Yes, they basically run uh, from, I guess, where today the Pennsylvania Monument is, South of the there, so 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 ba ridge. back behind the wheat field. Yes, they're at the southern end of the battlefield, back behind the, the right. wheat field, and they will do incredible damage. I mean, almost have enfilade fire as as they as Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, you know, divisions advance uh, towards the copse of trees. They are going to have enfilade fire. Matter of fact, they're going to absolutely rake. Um, Wilcox and Lang's brigades and also Kemper's brigade. And as, of course, as the uh, 
Confederate as picket advances, they start doing a, a echelon to the left to close up on Pettigrew. And when they do that echelon, of course, they present a flank and McGilvery's guys are just, you know, going to rake, you know, with enfilading fire, the uh, Confederate uh, formations. So, you know, in summary, you got target location challenges to the Confederates, and that's going to translate into uh, delivery problems as we uh, outlined. You know, for the Union, hey, the Confederates, they, they see them lining up there on the battlefield. They know where they're at. They've got an advancing uh, target array across open terrain, marching right into their planned interlocking zones of fire. So, you know, things are looking uh, pretty good for the the boys in blue as this uh, attack kicks off. Now, who, so it's Porter Alexander for Lee. Um, who is uh, who is Meade's chief of artillery? Henry Hunt. Henry Hunt. And Hunt holds that job for a long time, too. He does. Yeah. He does. Yeah. And, uh, you know, again, his, uh, the changes, the organizational changes that were made and the fact that he's now got command of uh, the artillery reserve and uh, those uh, brigades in the artillery reserve are going to make a, you know, big impact as the, the battle unfolds. So, so, we so okay. So it, go it, ahead. Um, can we talk about, um, can we talk about um, Lee's scheme of fires? What, you know, as he arrays all that artillery, you know, um, uh, prior to what's so you've looked at this yeah essentially it's take out the uh, union artillery on uh, cemetery uh, you know uh, ridge so i mean it's pretty pretty basic um and you know as you as we move now you you know we've got to decide we've got to detect let's talk about the delivery uh, so he's got this plan for a mass bombardment and I will tell you something. This is a pure supposition on my part, Mac. As I looked at this concept of operations, you know, all these guys had studied Napoleonic uh, warfare. And this looks to me an awful lot about, you know, a, how Napoleon would operate, where he would threaten the flank and then he'd roll up a mass artillery, uh, grand battery, as he called it, blow a hole in the uh, enemy formation and then, you know, penetrate it with maneuver forces. So this concept looks a lot to me like that, you know, might've been what uh, influenced, uh, you know, that study may have influenced Lee's uh, actions. I, I, Mike, I, I remember reading years ago um, that the German observer that was traveling with the army of Northern Virginia said that he had never seen artillery arrayed like this in his entire life. Um, I, thoughts on that? Is this is this innovative massing? Leap, I mean, what two hundred seventy guns, hub to hub to hub to hub across um, across well, Seminary the the, yeah, the southern extension ridge, yes. of Seminary Ridge, right? Um, right. Thoughts? Well, they actually they've got two hundred seventy guns, but only they've got one hundred and fifty that are going to support the bombardment because you've got some guns to the north that are blocked by the town of Gettysburg. And then you've got also got the uh, guns that are supporting Ewell's uh, fight up, you know, at Culp's, uh, Culp's Hill to the north. 
So it's not every gun in the uh, Confederate arsenal. You've got 150 out of uh, the approximately, as we talked, uh, of the 270 guns. So a little more than half of all the Confederate artillery are going to be involved in the bombardment. Got it. All right. So this thing kicks off. Uh, walk, so this, walk us through they, this thing as it begins to go. So they kick it off. Uh, you know, they're, they're signaled to kick it off. They're going to fire two two cannon to the south to signal everyone to, you know, stop, start the bombardment. Now, Porter Alexander has not only been given control, but he's been tasked to assess the effects. Both Lee and Longstreet have said, hey, Porter, it's up to you to decide when you've driven off the Union artillery and we can launch the maneuver, you know, forces launch our attack. And Alexander tells him right up front, hey, this is, that, that's going to be tough. You know, there's going to be a lot of smoke out here from all that uh, black powder on both sides. So probably the only way I'm going to be able to tell if we have silenced the federal artillery is by measuring, you know, how um, uh, intense their counterfire effort is. So I'm not probably going to be able to see, actually see the destruction that happens, but I'm going to be able to, you know, make a guess based on how much return fire we're getting. So going into this, you know, Alexander tells them up front that, you know, this is going to be tough to assess due to the technology of the day. So they kick off uh, the uh, bombardment approximately 1300 one source says, hey, it was exactly at 1307. And we talked about all the challenges that they have due to, you know, target location, the correct firing data, and also the fact that they're firing, you know, a flat trajectory weapon. They're firing perpendicular to the target array. So you've got a linear uh, union target array that they're not able to enfilade, being enfilading uh, fire on. So they've got a very shallow target that they're shooting at. And we've talked about some of the challenges of that range estimation, fuse settings, problems with fuses uh, caused. So they've got some, uh, you know, challenges that they've got to overcome. So everyone talks about the problems that they had and says, oh, the bombardment wasn't effective. But that all depends where you're sitting. If you're sitting in the two core area, and you're the two core artillery, hazards artillery in the middle uh, where, you know, the, the uh, attack is going to be aimed. That bombardment is very effective. You've got Cushing's battery. He loses four or six uh, guns. You've got Woodruff uh, loses uh, two out of four. He's, he's killed. Cushing, of course, is mortally wounded and killed. Rorty's killed, loses two, two guns. Arnold's battery next to Cushing is ultimately going to be driven off the uh, ridge. So there's and plenty these of, are all second core, which is Hancock. Right? These are all second core. This is Hancock's. Right, and uh, so this is at the tops of trees, and this is the aiming point of this the is attack. The aiming point for the attack. Right. So, you know, I would argue that it was pretty darn effective on the second core artillery units, and probably came close to achieving, uh, you know, the effect that. Lee was looking for. Now, the problem is 
you know, you can't count for the moral uh, domain and you don't know how people are going to react on, under fire. So you can't account for the fact that even though um, Cushing loses four out of six guns and he's basically mortally wounded, he's going to roll up his last two guns up to the, uh, you know, wall at the uh, angle and start cutting loose with, uh, you know, canister. So those are, you know, you just can't account for that in your your planning on how people are going to react under fire. Now I know now, I've, other- I know I've read that that meant many rounds overshot the target, and I, I want to say the log trains were back behind second core. Now I is is that not. Do you find did you find that not factual, or do you think no. that is as the smoke accumulated in the valley, the trails begin to um, the trails begin to wear into the ground, the elevation increases, and the lack of observation? Do you think that all contributes to that? Well, I think that all contributes to that, but you kind of led me to exactly my next point, Mac. <laughs> that uh, you know, sorry, inadvertently. You could say that the uh, Confederate bombardment really closely resembled what we would plan in the 20th century as a preparation fire. Because, you know, in our 20th century doctrine and early 21st century, it's it's changed a little bit now as I was looking at uh, some sources. But all through my career, when we talked about uh, prep fires, we were they were phased with phase one being the enemy's fire support system. Right. Phase two being his command and control and assembly areas, and then phase three being his forward uh, units. So they inadvertently hit a lot of what we would call phase two targets. The Lister House, where Meade's headquarters is, they're getting hit by the uh, overages, and he's got to displace out of the Lister House. So they've disrupted the Army of the uh, uh, Potomac's uh, command and control. Like you say, you've got rounds landing in the assembly areas. The artillery reserve actually has to be repositioned because their assembly is catching these uh, overages. So in some cases, uh, again, I think inadvertently, you almost have a more effective uh, preparation that does more to uh, you know, disorganize the overall defense than simply just concentrating on you know, the artillery and uh, you know, frontline units. Now, the infantry is a pro- problematic because obviously there's a stone wall. And once those guys take cover behind that stone wall, uh, you know, it's a challenge to, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, hit them. And especially when you're, you know, having problems with your fusing and target location and accuracy of, uh, you know, fires with your bursting but, type Mike, those, rounds. Those point targets, so. I would think nearly impossible to hit after the first few volleys and and that and smoke fills, uh, you know the Emmitsburg the Emmett, the Emmitsburg Pike, you know quarter, that day Cause, right because the atmospherics were the smoke hung in between the two forces, it, it sat in that little valley. Yeah, I, I would say if you've ever seen the movie Master and Commander. You know, uh, with uh, Russell Crowe and they're on uh, board ship, you know, one of the first scenes is you've got a French, uh, you know, frigate uh, that's coming out of uh, the uh, fog and he sees the flashes in the fog of the French frigate's guns firing. 
obviously you're going to see the flash before you hear the sound uh, because of the difference between how fast the light and sound travel. But I would think that, you know, once those things, uh, once everyone starts opening up, you know, the only thing you're going to have in his name point is any flashes that you see of artillery firing through all that, you know, smoke. So, you know, you're exactly right. And, you know, the, uh, the chances of hitting a point target after those first couple of volleys are, are virtually, virtually nil. Got it. Got it. Do you find great flaw? Uh, first of all, you said they didn't see Bigelow's guns that are down at the south end of the battlefield, right? McGilvery. McGilvery. You don't see – so they don't see those. So Lee's scheme of fires doesn't, doesn't seem to account for that. Um, that's, that's correct. Which is going to prove, you know, I mean, problematic is, is one, you know, a huge understatement. Um, right. And also Osborne, you know, so as I mentioned, you have three large groupings. You've got McGilvery in the south. You've got Hazard in the second core area. And as we just talked about, Hazard's guys take some uh, big hits. But then you've got Osborne's grouping to the north in the 11th core area. And those two um, groupings don't don't you know McGilvery basically doesn't get touched, and uh, um, Osborne's Eleventh Corps grouping is relatively unscathed also. But the point being, you have a, essentially your bombardment has blown a hole, if you will, in the uh, middle of the uh, you know where your attack is aimed at. And when the attack, you know, does reach, you know, the angle. Well, it's done. It's it's degraded the center battalion, right? right? It's degraded them. Hasn't touched the artillery on to the right and the left. They're unscathed. They're going to hammer them. And the impact on the infantry is not so much. Exactly. So... You know, maybe they, they did, you know, so they do some damage and then they, they do marginal damage to command and control. But the Union force post-prep is in pretty good shape, yes? It's in good shape and it's getting in better shape because you've got the Union uh, Reserve Artillery uh, is now on the move and moving up to uh, reinforce the uh, second core area. So you've got Weir's uh, battery coming up. You've got uh, um, Cowan's battery being coming up and being repositioned. So essentially, so, you know, so let's the talk, door is so let's talk about that. Shut. Where, where do these orders come from? From Meade to Hunt to, to reinforce 2nd Corps? Um, well, actually, it's Hunt making the call. Hunt's out on the battlefield, and Hunt is making the call. You know, uh, that authority is delegated by Meade to Hunt. To Hunt. Got it. And so so Hunt reinforces the losses that 2nd Corps, uh, Corps sustains. And now, while that's going on, do the Confederate guns fall silent as the infantry begin to move? Well, let's, let's talk about, let's, we kind of jumped ahead. So let's talk about... You know, first of all, the biggest problem that I see now is that, 
you know, the bombardment goes on, and now Alexander's got to assess, okay, have I silenced the Union artillery? Is it time to kick off? How long? And how long is how long? How many minutes are we talking about? The bombardment, you know, from what I've read, originally is supposed to be relatively short, maybe thirty minutes. Right. But the problem is this thing because he can't assess it, it just gets longer and longer. Uh, most people agree that it probably lasted about 90 minutes. Holy so shit. the problem that you've got now is, hey, you've shot up all your ammunition, and you know you you think you've achieved effects because what happens in the is that the union basically runs a deception plan that the word is given to the Union artillery, hey, stop firing slowly. And because we want, you know, I mean, this shows the confidence that the Union had in their position. We want the Confederate infantry to advance into our kill kill zone. Right. So we're going to s- slowly stop firing to make them think that they've knocked out our artillery. And that's what happens. Now, the big problem is Alexander sees that. He says, okay, it's time time for the attack to uh, kick off. He passes that word up. It gets the picket. But the problem is from the end of that bombardment, when he makes that decision, you know, to win picket has now got to kick off the attack and now advance, you know, 1,300, you know, meters, probably covering about, you know, 100 meters per minute maybe at a, you know, relatively quick ad- advance. Uh, that's all recovery time for the Union infantry, and that's all time for the uh, Union artillery to start reserve, to start repositioning and uh, fill the, you know, basically the gaps that have been created by the bombardment. So it, you, you know, to any, me, any, that, any idea how much time, how many minutes it ta- that takes before for Pickett, Pettigrew, et al., uh, to, to close from the time that, that the, 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 the prep was, was seized? Well, I've heard anywhere between 30 minutes before they kicked off. And then, again, you add the, you know, 15 minutes it would have ta- taken them to actually, you know, cover the distance. You know, if those numbers are correct, you're talking, and even if they got a, a direct order, again, you're talking between 15 and 30 minutes. Right. And when you start looking at recovery time, you know, from suppressive fires, you know, that's measured in seconds and minutes. And, you know, the, uh, you know, the federal forces, you know, there's uh, stories of them, you know, popping up and they're all chanting Fredericksburg, 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 because, you know, they say this is our payback time, yeah. what you did to us at uh, Fredericksburg. So bring it on. We're ready. Right. right. The um, All right. Keep going. So that deception plan uh, gets uh, executed. And uh, again, what I think is uh, interesting is like any good deception plan, that plan reinforces, you know, what the enemies, you know, wanted to believe and what their primary course of action was. They wanted to believe that they had knocked out the Union guns so they could start the attack. And that deception plan, you know, fed that and reflected the confidence that the Union had in its uh, you know, defensive uh, position, essentially inviting the Confederates to bring it on. So, you know, that failure to assess the bombardment, that's a challenge that we've still got, you know, today. 
uh, you know, bomb damage assessment is one of the toughest things that uh, we have to do. And a lot of times, you know, we get just as guilty as the Confederates were and people measure level of effort and take that as, you know, uh, achieving effects. So, you know, the Confederates kick off the attack. They're going to advance through the Union kill zone and they're going to get, you know, decimated as they're, uh, you know, advancing. Now, I also got to point out that although this Union organization was, uh, you could say, revolutionary or, or uh, certainly contributed to the success, uh, there, it's not without fog and friction of its own. You've got Hancock sitting there in the second, as the second uh, corps commander, and Hancock sitting there, and when the Confederate artillery is firing, he looks around and says, hey, how come we're not shooting back? And he starts going down the line saying, hey, I want you guys to start firing. And for him, it's, a, you know, the, they say the uh, Union artillery says, hey, well, General Hunt, Hunt came along and his orders were we're not to, you know, waste our fire on, uh, you know, counterfire that, uh, you know, we're supposed to save it for the uh, infantry. And Hancock, you know, tells him, hey, I don't care what he said. You know, I'm I'm worried about the morale of my boys, you know, being under fire. I want you guys to start, you know, shooting back. So, of course, he commands the, you know, the, the second corps artillery of Hazard's five batteries all do come under his his command. And so they start firing back. And as a result, they expend most of their long range, uh, you know, ammunition. Now, he also rides down and runs into uh, McGilvery and guys from the artillery reserve. And he tells McGilvery and starts telling uh, commanders from the uh, artillery reserve, hey, you guys need to start firing. Now, this is where you get the truth to power. Another Freeman McGilvery. McGilvery says, hey, pal, I don't care if you're a major general. I don't work for you. I work for General Hunt. He told me not to to, uh, fire and I'm following his orders, not yours. So, uh, you know, another point where, you know, Friedman and McGilvery uh, earns points. A couple of the battery commanders that he had previously ran into that were uh, reserve, artillery reserve batteries, you know, they're, uh, they're lieutenants and captains, so they're probably not quite as bold as uh, Freeman McGilvery. So, but what they do is they say, okay, General, we got it. They fire off a couple of volleys and then, you know, go silent, uh, you know, so uh, they're ready to, uh, you know, they're going to comply with uh, Hunt's orders. Is he around this the be- Is he around the bend yet? Yeah. Yeah, this uh, becomes uh, a huge post-war controversy between Hunt and uh, Hancock that lasts for years, you know, really to their dying day that, uh, you know, Hancock says, hey, I should, you know, maneuver, maneuver commander should command all the artillery. I'm responsible for everything that happens in in my zone, so therefore I should command all the artillery. I should be the one, you know, in charge. And of course, Hunt's reply is, "Well, you know, the guys that uh, you know are the technical experts uh, should be in charge." And oh, by the way, uh, what happens is ultimately Hunt wins out. And again, as I mentioned before, that our artillery organizational concepts today look a hell of a lot more like what Hunt uh, was executing and proposed 
versus what Hancock and I'd also say the Confederates. Um, Which is everybody executed. essentially in direct support. That's correct. Everything right. decentralized in direct support of the maneuver commander. Got it. All right. What's next? So, so the, uh, you know, again, Union artillery starts, uh, you know, rolling up the hill to reinforce. You got Weir, you know, uh, uh, battery coming in to plug in where uh, Cushing was. They arrived just about the time that um, Armistead is making his, you know, breakthrough. So as Armistead's coming across the wall with what has been estimated to be between as low as 100, liberally 200, you know, a couple hundred guys, he's coming across the wall. Weir's battery shows up, they unlimber, and they start dumping canister into, uh, you know, the penetration. You've also got uh, Cowan's battery, Webb's, you know, again, former artilleryman, he's waving his hands, and Cowan's artillery battery quickly repositions to, again, help seal off the... uh, Penetration. No, and, and, course, and so and they're they're in vicinity of Second Corps Hancock, right there in the center of of the Union line. Weir has actually been got his battery down on Taney uh, Taney Town Road. Wow. He he came up early on saying, "Hey, I'm ready to go. Where do I go?" And they said, "Well, there's no room for you." So he's sitting down on uh, Taney Town Road you know, waiting to be, uh, you know, called forward. Cowan uh, gets plugged in towards the, really almost the kind of the southern portion of the uh, Second Corps position. And then he gets repositioned uh, when, you know, again, Webb starts signaling for support and Cowan repositions his battery to support Webb and Webb's counterattack as they seal the uh, penetration. You can only ima- thought- You can only imagine that. Right. Yeah. All and what all found, hell's breaking loose. Now we unlimber. Now we're going to reposition. Yeah, and they do it in about a minute. Wow. So they're yeah, it's amazing. they're they're really quick. What I found was very interesting is, you know, again the Union with their artillery reserve units will fire when they're out of ammo or they're they need to be refitted. They go back to the reserve area where they're rearmed and refitted. So when I started looking at uh, Cowan's battery, I said, where did these guys come from? Because Cowan's battery was not part of the uh, any of the reserve uh, brigade organizations in the artillery reserve, Cowan's battery actually belonged to Sixth uh, Corps, which was down on the uh, you know south of Little uh, Round Top. You know, basically blocking any kind of uh, flank maneuver around uh, Little Round Top. So I can only surmise. I don't know this for sure. I can only surmise that at some point Cowan had gone back to the uh, artillery reserve. Another unit had been, uh, battery had been pushed back down to the 6th Corps. And, uh, you know, Cowan then is ready for tasking and gets tasked as a, you know, now part of the reserve to uh, get committed into the 2nd Corps area. So, again, it shows the flexibility of the Union organization and how they could move artillery around on the battlefield to get it where it needed to be at the, you know, critical place and time. Got it. Got it. What's next? So, Mac, you know, uh, we've been talking for quite a while now. And so, I mean, I, 92, I guess I'll just... 92, yeah. 92 minutes to be exact. Yeah. 
probably a little longer than you imagined. Um, you know, so at the end of the day, the Confederate assault is, uh, you know, driven back. Um, you know, when they start saying, okay, let's start doing our AAR, you know, originally, of course, we know Lee's original assessments, hey, hey, I'm the commander, I'm responsible. It was all on, on me. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was interesting that he talks about as the narrative, uh, you know, starts developing over the months and then the years, you know, he starts to say that, hey, General Pickett carried the Union uh, defensive works. And uh, if we only had, you know, better artillery support, you know, the, the attack would have succeeded. Um, I don't know what the doctrinal definition of carry the works is, but when you launch an attack with about 10,000 uh, troops between all those units, and when Pickett crosses the, you know, line of departure with, you know, uh, roughly about 5,000, you know, the estimates go higher and lower, but we'll just say 5,000 for a ballpark. When you launch an attack, uh, you're, and out of that division of 5,000 folks, uh, you know, 150 to 200 or 100 to 200, you know, actually make the penetration. Um, I'm not sure that, uh, you know, that's uh, a measure of success. That I, I certainly wouldn't want to be part of. And obviously it's nowhere near, as we talked about, you know, a penetration, Nowhere there's, you know, they don't come close to not only penetrating, but holding the shoulders and having reserves, you know, committed in a timely manner to exploit that penetration and, you know, roll up the uh, Union, you know, defensive position. So, in my opinion, they don't even come close to uh, succeeding on that, uh, you know, on July 3rd. What about, um, was there a way to support this thing, Mike, um, in your opinion, that, 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 you know, that would have made it better? I would say with the technology of the day, um, it's unlikely. And uh, the only thing that could have, as we mentioned previously, that might have allowed them to be more accurate on the targets that they could identify was if they had done some adjustment uh, of individual pieces in order to, to determine a range and a time of flight and a few setting that they could uh, effectively uh, see in order to pass on, you know, before they opened up the mass bombardment. But I would tell you back at a thousand, uh, you know, yards or 1300 yards with a naked eye to tell whether that air burst is on target, short of the target or over, that is very, very tough to do. You know, even today when we use mechanical, you know, time fuses, we first adjust on with HE and then we go into right. a uh, adjustment of the uh, time fuse in order to get the correct height of burst that we're looking for and ensure that we have, uh, you know, effects on, on target. So that's not something that you do, uh, you know, relatively quickly. And it's, again, it's, you know, with the naked eye and the uh, optics that they had at the time, I think that would have been a challenge uh, even uh, for so, some of the experienced artillerymen that they had. And oh, by the way, it doesn't, uh, even if they did, it doesn't account for the, I'll call it an intel failure, to be able to identify 
know that there was a large artillery groupment that's uh, sitting on the southern, you know, um, flank of their attack that's going to absolutely wreak destruction on them. So give me your so give me your conclusion. My my ultimate conclusion is uh, that I don't think that Lee had a coordinated concept of operations. He, I think there were flaws in it, and those flaws started, you know, cascade, you know, cascading at four in the morning when uh, you know the uh, Union launches its attack on uh, Culp's uh, Hill to d- drive Ewell off the uh, bottom of uh, Culp's Hill. Union seizes the initiative. Uh, so his plan for a synchronized and coordinated attack breaks down. In execution, it's not coordinated. Uh, down at the core level, you know, the, the right flank of Wilcox and Lang out of, that have been uh, chopped from Anderson's Division on the far southern flank, those guys get launched late. So, you know, you've got the unions able to, first of all, concentrate on Pickett's division and then, you know, turn and deal with Wilcox and Lang. So I think you've got a poor concept that is poorly executed. And even if the artillery was you know, totally dialed in, I think that the union adjustments that they had made to their organization and how they employed their artillery were going to allow them to react and blunt this attack, even if the Confederate artillery had been more effective. So imagine, if you will, if that, you know, Confederate artillery had, you know, moved out you know, they would have come under fire from McGilvery and Osborne and those reinforcing units, and they would have been on open terrain. So they would have had, you know, I think the Union artillery would have wreaked havoc on any artillery that, uh, you know, tried to go uh, forward. Right. Right. All right. What? Um, first of all, I want to thank you for doing this. Um, I, I, I mean, if you love history and 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 for those of us who have been stationed in Northern Virginia and, and got a chance to go to the battlefields, um, you know, you, you begin to learn. And then, you know, I, I, I was very fond of, you know, doing decision-making stuff. And, and as you go start doing decision-making stuff, you get further and further into the weeds of the techniques that they use to deliver fire, to do, to do signals, right, um, and all the to do reconnaissance, all the different things. And uh, and and these are huge historical discussions in in, in the nation's military history, and so I I I, I love this kind of stuff. So uh, yeah, let me let me give you one other thought here, Mac, and that's you know why does the Confederate artillery get blamed, and why does the Union artillery not necessarily get you know the credit for the work that they did? Um, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that. You know, there's no big state constituencies for the artillery units. You know, each battery, you know, is comes from a location and they're, you know, put together. But it's not like you've got, you know, Pickett's division with, you know, all the guys from Virginia. And so, you know, any criticism against Pickett's division, boy, people in Virginia are going to be screaming and hollering. 
Not so, you know, with the artillery. I mean, you've well, got, those are the, all individual and, and, and batteries. The, and the first person that was going to get protected was? Of course, Robert E. Lee. Yeah. Robert E. Lee, the marble the mar- man. The marble man. Yeah, he was not, nothing was going to stick to him. You talk about the original Teflon man. And so, you know, um, these debates rage uh, in publications like the Southern Historical Society papers. I mean, these guys wrote, and that's what, one of the great things of when you try to learn about this stuff. They wrote prolifically, and both sides write in English, so you can you can and, and it's readily available. So it's fascinating to read. Not all of it, uh, not all of it on the up and up. Uh, yeah, reputations and also, being protected and and uh, and whatnot. So yeah, and also you've got key commanders on the Union side that unfortunately are you know killed in the battle. You've talked about. I know you've talked about many occasions. You've got you know Strong Vincent up on the Little Round Top. You know is killed and doesn't get a lot of the credit he probably deserved. Freeman McGilvery, you know, dies is it dies uh, under, you know, chloroform, uh, you know, for basically a minor operation to a wound to his finger at, uh, you know, Petersburg. So he's not around. So some of the key guys aren't around to uh, participate in some of the uh, post-war, you know, debates. So, uh, you know, again, history uh, is... Uh, you know, interpreted by those who uh, write it, and, and everyone has their uh, agenda. And very few people are going to say, hey, you know, I want to tell you how I, I fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't see too many articles like that relative yeah. uh, relative to Gettysburg. Mike, uh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate the, the deep dive on uh, artillery at Gettysburg, and, uh, and uh, we're going to have to come up with another historical event where we can – do another deep dive in terms of uh, artillery on that. So, uh, so we've done one on the march up, and now Gettysburg. So, uh, let me know when you get the next one, and we'll do it. Well, I, I think maybe we'll shift to a little naval gunfire and talk about some of the stuff in the uh, that happened in the Solomon Islands and, and naval gunnery. Might be a good good topic. All right, no, <laughs> I'd love to. Mike Marletto, thank you very much. Thanks, Mac. Appreciate it. No. There you have it. More Ball Marine Radio coming up next right here on your home for it, the All Warrior Radio Network. 